All right, so time got away from me a little bit this week, so I was not able to make a PowerPoint, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to uh, just do it verbally or audibly, I guess, from your perspective uh, today. So I apologize for that. <clears throat> Try to get that up for next week as we continue on. Uh, so today we're going to be doing the first uh, session on Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be more of a controversial one because there's a lot of questions as to whether they're Christians or not. I think it's pretty definitive that Catholics are not Christians, uh, but we're going to get into that a little bit uh, as we go. Uh, the focus of today's class is going to be their claim to authority. All right, uh, it's it's the pillar on which everything stands. So if you accept Roman Catholicism, you get everything else that goes along, or if you accept the authority of the church, everything else comes along with it, uh, and if you, in order to dismantle that, you need to pull that pillar out, and everything else falls. Uh, they don't rest their theology on the Bible, uh, or on tradition, or anything like that, at least they, that they claim it does, but it doesn't. Uh, we're going to talk about that more in depth. So, uh, sitting at around, oh, is there a question? Okay. So sitting at around one and one-third billion people uh, worldwide, Catholics boast the largest group of people who call themselves Christians in the world. Like no one, even the total number of people who call themselves evangelical or Protestant uh, are just around a billion or just under a billion people. So they're the biggest group. Uh, and in many ways, they are the global face of Christianity. Uh, this is unfortunate, in my opinion. Uh, like, when was the last time you ever watched a mainstream movie uh, where the person having a crisis of faith went to a pastor or another Christian? Outside of, like, a movie made, right, by Christians. Uh, no, they always go to a priest. They're always at a Catholic church talking to a priest. Uh, or if they're, every horror movie that's out there that has anything to do with demons or Satan or whatever, it's always a priest, right there with the white collar and the black robes, right, the power of Christ compels you, etc. It's never a Christian pastor, okay? Uh, part, of, part of that just might be the aesthetic quality of it, too, like you got, you know, the collar and the robes, or as opposed to, you know, skinny jeans and, you know, a vest or something, I don't know, so... Uh, but that's, that's when people hear Christian around the world, even in America, they automatically think Catholic. So the Pope is the face of Christianity. Uh, like I said before, it's unfortunate. Uh, so then I just want to ask the question, are, the Catholic, are, are Catholics Christians? Do they deserve to be that face? I don't think so. So uh, I know that is a question that's going to offend a lot of people. Uh, it certainly is going to offend Catholics. Okay, so, because they are pretty adamant that they are Christians. Uh, and it would also offend those who regard Catholics as their fellow brothers, right? Such as Billy Graham, very famously regarded them as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are others out there, of course. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that they're not Christians because I hate Catholics, or that I have some kind of vendetta against them. I was raised Catholic. That was, that was the tradition I was brought up in. Uh, but I, I still don't have anything personal against them. It's just I left because they didn't have the truth. So, uh, And it's not because they're bad people, okay? because they're no better or worse off than any other group of people or any other person. They're normal, just like anybody else. Uh, I say that because while there is a lot of overlap between our two camps, right, Catholics and Christians, uh, there is one essential area in which we do not overlap, and that is the gospel. They flatly, outright deny the gospel of Christ, as seen in Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, etc. Like it, it is, it is works-based gospel, and it's not an issue of uh, the necessity of grace. It's a matter of the sufficiency of grace. So, in this regard, they're very similar to Rome, uh, to uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, who all regard that Jesus is necessary for salvation, and that grace is there but then you have to go the rest of the way with your works. All right? They have the, the treasury of merit, as they call it. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, we're going to go really in-depth on the issue of salvation uh, and what the Bible says compared to what they say. And it's, it's, 
it's really bad how they how they do that. Um, and in fact, they really go so far in their denunciation of the gospel that because all of us in here, or I guess me and the gospel that we profess at this church, is that it's salvation by grace alone, not by works. They say that you're cursed to hell because of it. That's official church doctrine. It has not been. Uh, it's not been rescinded. It was declared that way at the Council of Trent in 1546. No relation to me. Okay, sorry. It was just at the city of Trent in Italy, uh, northern Italy there. Uh, and, and that was, in, you might think, well, that's 500 years ago, right? Maybe they've changed. Well, no, it's considered to be infallible. These church councils are infallible uh, decisions that the church makes, in, in their opinion. And they reaffirmed it in Vatican I in the 1870s, which was another church council. And then they even reaffirmed it again in Vatican II, which was just in the 1960s, so 50, 60 years ago. They're still affirming this doctrine officially. Right? That doesn't necessarily trickle down to every individual Catholic, uh, but on the whole, like as far as what they actually teach as a church, that, that's what it is. So, um, They also spent centuries persecuting and outright murdering people who preach the gospel. This, this persecution predated even the Reformation. Uh, you had people like John Wycliffe and uh, John, uh, John Huss, like people who were preaching the gospel, and they had these people killed. Uh, and even during the Reformation, like they tried really hard to suppress the Bible. Like they sent a man named uh, Thomas More to go hunt down uh, William Tyndale in England because he was translating the Bible into English and releasing the books as they went. Uh, and he, just, just before Tyndale was able to finish it, they found him, and it wasn't good enough just to burn him alive at the stake. They had to strangle him while they burned him as well for his crime of just translating the Bible into English. So, uh, And while they have softened their rhetoric and their uh, actions against Christians today, uh, and they don't persecute us like that. Like, I'm not, I don't walk down the street. You can go to Italy and even enter the Vatican as a non-Catholic, as a uh, self-proclaimed evangelical, and they're not going to, like, slit your throat or anything like that, all right? Uh, so they've softened that rhetoric, but they have not repented of their false gospel, and they still don't acknowledge that what they did was wrong. In fact, they canonized Thomas More as a saint in 1935, and then in the, I think it was 2000, Pope John Paul uh, declared that he was the patron saint of statesmen, right? Because I can think of nothing more statesmanly than uh, burning your opponents alive at the stake, right? So, uh, yeah, so it's unfortunate. And it's, it's still, <laughs> yeah, so there's, it's, still, it's still going on today. Uh, it's just, it, it's more, just, it's a software rhetorical thing now, so. Um, so, in my opinion, and I think, I think it's clearly and definitively a false religious system. No organization claiming the name of Christ has ushered more people into hell than the Catholic Church has. Because they've existed now since the 5th or 6th century. They don't go all the way back to the apostles like they claim. Uh, and they have very consistently fought against the true gospel of Christ. They've kept the, the Bible in Latin. They kept their services in Latin. Up until like 1968 or whenever Vatican II was in the mid-1960s, all services were in Latin still. So like your parents, uh, for some of you younger people, if they were raised Catholic, they would attend a church service and have no understanding of what was going on because it's all in a dead language. So uh, they really went to great lengths to, to suppress this stuff. So, but nothing, and so people think it's going to be unkind for me to say these things about them, uh, but I think it's that nothing is more unkind or unloving than letting somebody persist in this false religious system, because they think they're Christians. Uh, here's a quote from John MacArthur on Catholicism. So as I was researching uh, Catholics, Google and YouTube started pressing things on me, like, here, you might be interested in what John MacArthur has to say. So I thought, yes, I would be, actually. Uh, and he says, about Catholicism... Uh, those believers throughout the centuries, along with genuine and discerning believers today, understand uh, that Roman Catholicism is a false system. It is a false priesthood, 
a false source of revelation in tradition and the magisterium, and has illegitimate power granted to it by this magisterium. It engages in idolatry by the worship of saints and the veneration of angels. It conducts a horrific exaltation of Mary above Christ, and that's not an exaggeration, uh, and even God. It conducts a twisted sacrament of the Mass by which Jesus is sacrificed again and again, and it offers false forgiveness through the confessional. And all of those are true. We're going to go over them in the next couple weeks. Uh, and they, like when they conduct their Mass, uh, you'll notice like at the, at the front of their church, there's a big cross, but we have that as well, but ours is empty. It's just a cross. Theirs is a crucifix. They always have an Im image of Jesus on it because they think when they're doing the Mass and they're doing the, the, the words to turn that Eucharist into the literal body and blood of Jesus, that they're sacrificing Jesus again. Uh, but, you know, Hebrews says that he was sacrificed once and for all for sins. All right, so, and I just want to take a moment to clarify who I'm talking about, too. I'm, I'm speaking strongly against the Catholic Church and their teachings. Okay? I'm not judging the salvation of every individual Catholic who is a member of this group. I don't know who Uncle Joe or Grandma Sally or whoever is saved or not. Okay? I, I, just, I can't know that. Uh, it just, it, it's entirely between them and the Lord. Okay? That's review from the first lesson that we had. Uh, but Catholicism is without question a false religious system uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of them is unsaved. Okay? The number of people as a percentage who are saved in Catholicism is going to be probably much higher than that of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Uh, but, that, uh, but, but Christians who continue as Catholics, are, who are Christians, are not there because of Catholic doctrine, because they know it. It's because they don't know Catholic doctrine and probably just aren't aware of it. Okay, so they attend, they get enough Bible verses weekly uh, for them to, to acknowledge the gospel and then become, come to faith in Christ. But because they don't really understand what's going on every week with the Mass and they don't go to their religious classes, they didn't go through catechism or it was when they were a kid and they completely have forgotten it, they weren't paying attention. Uh, so it's it's if if it was if they really knew Catholic doctrine understood it and believed it, they would definitely not be saved. So Catholic saved Catholics are saved in spite of the doctrine, not because of it. Uh, Catholics have an advantage to getting saved over Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in the fact that they don't have Bible study aids that are being forced on them from the organization like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. Uh, they don't just have blatantly made-up books like the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, like the Mormons do. So they have a Bible. Uh, it's more or less the same as the one we have. Uh, they do have a few extra books in there. They're called the Apocryphal Books. Uh, they, are, they were added at the Council of Trent in the 1500s because they were just getting blasted by the Reformers for all their bad doctrine. And so they said, we need something to justify this. And they're like, oh, Maccabees has people praying to dead saints. Bam, Maccabees is scriptures now. Okay, so that's, that's where that came from. Uh, these are books that have always been a part of the church. They were read often by the church, but they were always regarded as being separate from scripture. Uh, Saint or Jerome, he was a, uh, a monk in the fourth or fifth century who translated the Bible into Latin, which was, came to be came to be known as the Vulgate. Uh, he translated these apocryphal books because they were in circulation, but he made a note. He put them in there as a block and put a note on it saying, hey, these are books that are helpful for Christian teaching, uh, and they've been circulated as Christian books, but they're not scripture. It's just right there in their own Bible. Vulgate is the official Bible of the Catholic Church. So it's kind of ironic that they regard the scripture now overriding what their own Bible actually says right there in the text, that it's not scripture. Now, we won't have time to go really in-depth into the Apocrypha today, maybe even not for the other times, but, uh, but there's, some good, there's some good stories in there. Like, I love the book of Tobit. Uh, 
the story of Judith is a little odd to me, and Maccabees too. Like it's it's basically the, the stories of what happens between uh, the book of Micah and the Gospel of Matthew. That's all it is, and they're written in Greek. It's a Jewish history of what happens, uh, but they're not inspired works of God, and they and they even acknowledge within themselves that they're not inspired works. They're just history books. Is all they are. Um. So the main challenge in witnessing to Catholics is getting them to doubt the authority of the church. That's the stranglehold that they have. That's what you're going to have to overcome. Uh, the other advantage for witnessing to Catholics is that unlike Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, there truly is overlap between them and us. Okay? Like if you put the Venn diagram of a circle between Jehovah's Witnesses and us, or Mormons and us, right, it's very little. The only things that are really overlapping are the words that we use, right? So like when a Jehovah's Witness says Jesus, they mean a spirit was created uh, and he was Michael the archangel, etc. And when Mormons believe he's, a, he's a, a spirit child of God, he's our elder brother. So the only overlap there is the word Jesus, the name Jesus. Uh, we're Catholics, they're going to believe the same as us in the Trinity. They're going to believe all the same things about Jesus as us. Uh, they have the same Bible as us, borrowing those few extra books. So there's some real big advantage there when talking with them because you don't have to, to overcome these big doctrinal, uh, other, other major doctrinal errors that other groups make. So that's good. But that's also the thing that makes it hard on us. Because there's that overlap, uh, people assume, oh, well, they believe the Trinity. They have, they have the real Jesus beliefs about him. Uh, therefore, it's, it's a Christian core with just a bunch of bad traditions built around it. But there really is no core, a Christian core in it at all. It's just all traditions of man, and they've ejected the gospel out of the center. Uh, so one other major advantage, a third one here, is that uh, Catholics also are not cult-like in the same way Jehovah's Witnesses Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are. They're not secluded from society. They don't have secret temples that no one else can go into. They don't hide their doctrine. It's all out there. So it's, it's not cult-like in that sense, but it is cult-like in their claim of authority. So they claim total spiritual authority, not just over the church, uh, but over everything. Like They claim they have authority over governments, over the whole world, everybody, over us even. Uh, it's it's really stunning the claims that they make on what, what they think they have power over. Uh, and as another note, too, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm going to be speaking of Catholics as though I'm talking about a healthy Catholic church. Okay? I don't appreciate when people talk about evangelicals or Baptists as them being, as being compared to the worst among us. So, like, I don't want, you know, the... Westboro Baptist Church being compared to us and them saying, oh, they're, that group is them. They, they hate these people and they're vindictive. Therefore, that's what church uh, or the Riverview Church is like. Uh, I don't want to do that. So we're going to compare them at their best. Uh, so I'm not going to necessarily spend a lot of time talking about their child abuse scandals and other issues like that uh, that have plagued them, even though they have egg on their face for those and they deserve the... the the bad report that they get for it because they handled that really badly. Uh, but it's just not going to be the focus of the class. We're going to talk about just the doctrine and like the best of it like, and why, it's, why that even falls flat. So. Uh, so a few famous Catholics, as I've always been sharing, famous, uh, uh, famous members of these groups. Uh, and once again, I'm including actual practicing Catholics in this list. I'm not counting people like Leonardo DiCaprio who says he's a Catholic, but is very blatantly not following Catholic teaching at all, and there's a bunch of people that are like that. Uh, so first one, Mother Teresa, right? pretty famous one, uh, Armenian nun who went to India and served the poor there for her life, uh, a lot of controversies surrounding her. Uh, pope John Paul II, he's probably the only pope that most people can name even though he was two or three popes ago. So there was the current one, Francis, and then before that was Benedict, who's still alive, he just stepped down, and then before that was John Paul II. 
but he was, he was a really beloved pope worldwide. Uh, Clarence Thomas, who's on the Supreme Court right now, he's very, very popular with uh, the conservative base, uh, politically speaking, but he's a Catholic practicing. Matt Walsh, the Daily Wire, he's Catholic. Uh, and then also his, who's the other guy there? Uh, Michael Knowles, thank you. He's Catholic. Uh, Mel Gibson, he's a practicing Catholic. He definitely had some moral issues, but I think there's real, think there's real Catholic faith there in him that he tries hard to practice. Abby Johnson, uh, she's a pro-life activist. They actually just made a movie about her a few years ago called Unplanned, her story from being working for the Planned Parenthood and becoming a, a uh, well, they, they portray her as becoming an evangelical Christian there in the movie, but uh, she has uh, become a Catholic. And largely, I think she's motivated to do that because of the Catholic Church's strong stance on life, because life is such an important issue to her. G.K. Chesterton, very famous Catholic, um, alive around the same time as uh, C.S. Lewis. And then Thomas More, who I already mentioned, because he's known Sir Thomas More, or St. Thomas More, as they call him. Uh, okay, so the authority of the Catholic Church and the Pope. So why am I starting out with this? Uh, as I already explained, it's the only pillar that Roman Catholicism has to stand on. Everything else, and I mean everything else, rests on their pillar. They've got all kinds of traditions that they have just stacked up on top of this pillar, uh, and their only claim that they have for why that these things are true is because they have the authority to say that they're true. They don't use the Bible to prove any of their theology. They don't uh, at all. So when they say uh, Mary was bodily assumed into heaven and that Mary was born without sin or when the, the whole concept of indulgences where you can buy your way out of purgatory or you buy somebody else's way out of purgatory. That's something that's still practiced to this day in Catholicism. It's famous for Martin Luther railing against it during the Reformation. Uh, but none of that is found in the Scripture, and they don't even really pretend to find it in Scripture either. They just say it's true because we say it's true, because we have the authority to develop this doctrine. We're going to talk about that in detail in a little bit. Uh, so this is, this is the area where you need to go attack uh, the Catholic faith on when you're witnessing to somebody. Uh, you're going to waste your time talking about indulgences and showing them what it means in the Bible or that Mary did commit sins. There are sins that Mary committed that are in the Bible. We're going to talk about it here in, uh, in two or three weeks. Uh, <clears throat> that, but it, it's, you're going to get nowhere with them because they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter because the Pope and the Magisterium say that that's what's true. And they're the ones who are the only ones who are able to interpret Scripture. So why should I trust you when they're the ones with the authority? So you need to pull that pillar out. And once you pull it out, because there's no scriptural support for anything else, it all just falls down. So. And by the way, it's the same thing in reverse. So there are evangelicals that, uh, that convert to Catholicism. And then the basis of that is, oh, well, the Catholic Church is the one true church, and they're the ones who go back to the beginning, and therefore I need to accept uh, the authority of the Pope, and then they just tack on everything else. It all just, it's a full package deal. Uh, so just, and just to illustrate this as well, let me share you a quick testimony, share with you a quick testimony. So I went to St. John's University for my undergrad. Uh, this is a Catholic university. It's a, it has a Benedictine monastery attached to it. So Benedictine is just a type of order that, they, that the monks there belong to. Uh, many of the professors there were monks. Several of them were priests. I came to faith in Christ through an evangel evangelistic outreach of a local church there in my hometown in the summer between our freshman and sophomore years. So I had been raised Catholic. So naturally, after getting saved, because school started two weeks later, I thought... That meant I needed to go to the Catholic Church. And I'm like, there's a church right here on my campus. That's where I'm going to go. So I started attending weekly Mass, and I got together with a priest. I got together with Father Nick and then occasionally Father Jerome every Sunday night for two years. 
And we went through the catechism together and all that. Uh, but I did this. I didn't do this alone. I had some friends that I had that were Catholic there at school, and we all did it together. Uh, but at the same time, I was also attending a Bible study on campus on Tuesday nights. So there was a pastor who was retired, and he still wanted to have an impact for the kingdom. And his son had been a uh, student at St. John's before me, and so he just would drive up every Tuesday started a Bible study and would meet with students there. And then he just kept doing it even after his son graduated. And fortunately, right, I found out about it and was able to start attending this. Uh, <clears throat> so I would, and my other friends, we would bring our questions to him that would come up during our catechism time with the priests. Like, what is this about Mary? What is this about purgatory? How, like, what is this about works being involved in salvation and meriting grace, etc.? Uh, and he had really good, solid biblical responses to our questions very consist consistently. Uh, and I remember quite clearly the dis different responses that I had to this than from my friends. So for me, I would hear what the Bible says from this pastor. We would look at it. I would say, yeah, that is what the Bible says. I can see it. Right? And that would make me question the Catholic theology. Right? And that's why I eventually left the Catholic Church, because almost nothing that they teach really comes from the Bible. Uh, whereas my friends, they would hear what the Bible says, and then they would question the Bible. They would say, I don't know about this Bible thing. It's contradicting what Pope Benedict says, and what I was taught growing up, what my priest said. And they're the ones who are in authority, so how can I really trust the Bible anymore? See, so the difference was that I was genuinely saved. And while they were professing to be in Christ, they weren't. And neither of them are walking with Christ anymore. Unfortunately, no. So they just could not get over the fact that the Bible contradicts a massive amount of Catholic theology, particularly around justification. And that's, that's sad. So, and I was holding on, trying to be Catholic a lot longer than I probably would have because of their influence. I probably would have left a lot earlier. Uh, but is what it is. So... So if you try to start out teaching a Catholic about what the Bible says about Mary Purgatory, for example, you're constantly be butting up against the problem of authority. So that's the issue that needs to be dealt with first. So that's why we're going to deal with it first here in this class. The remaining classes after that are going to be basically going through that bad theology that they've tacked on and then just dismantling it and showing you how to deal with it biblically, uh, that Mary did sin, that there is no purgatory. There's nowhere where you have to go to pay for your sins after you've died before you can make it to heaven. It's just not in the Bible. And I'm going to be doing this class a little bit different. So before I would bring up the first, the first class would be all about uh, what, they, what the group believes. And the second one would be how to examine it biblically, examining the, the, their beliefs biblically. I'm going to try to do them side by side. For Catholicism, it's just too complex and too dense to be able to do that. There's just too much there. So I'm just going to do, like we're going to teach what they say about it and then examine it biblically just going forward. All right, so authority. Catholics claim to have a three-legged stool for, author for authoritative teachings. Three-legged stool for sources for the authoritative teaching. So they're going to say the Pope and the Magisterium is one. They're going to say the Bible is the second one, and then sacred tradition is the third one. So they think that all of these are equal in authority. So the Bible, whatever it teaches, that's authoritative. And when it, when it's, when it speaks about doctrine... The Pope, whenever they make doctrinal statements or matters of faith, it's infallible. And the cardinals underneath them as well, when they get together uh, and create these, uh, these councils. And then tradition. Tradition is, to them, is just what they think was passed on to them from the apostles. So they, they have this idea that there were the apostles, they had the authority to make doctrine, and then they passed that authority on to their successors, who then passed it on to their successors going forward all the way to modern day. And along with that, 
were these extra teachings that weren't found in the Bible. So things that Peter taught, like I'm the vicar, like he's the vicar of Christ, the guy who's the representative of Christ. That Peter supposedly believed this and passed this on to his successor, who became the second pope. Uh, that's just tradition. So it's things that are not written down that they just claim, uh, have just over, that the church has always believed, because they, they have the ones who have just maintained it this whole time. Uh, but this is really not true, uh, at least not as a matter of practice. It's only a mat- true as a matter of rhetoric. What they re- Really the only authority in the Catholic Church is the Pope and his magisterium underneath him, which are the College of Cardinals and the Bishops, etc., uh, and we're going to examine that why. So, Catholics consider the Bible to be sacred scripture. They believe it's inspired by God. However, it can only be understood in light of Catholic Church teachings. They regard it to be authoritative, but they are the only ones who can interpret it accurately. This is from official church councils and creeds, that they're the only ones who can interpret the Bible. That's it. So, the Bible is authoritative to all of us on doctrine, as well as the, the Pope, but only the Pope can translate it. So who's really the only authority there? Right, the Pope. So he's obviously above the Bible, even though they want to say they're on equal planes. Uh, Catholics regard tradition as being authoritative. Uh, so this is from Vatican II, which was in the 1960s. It just says, This tradition, which comes from the apostles, develop in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. So it's right there that they say that they have the authority from the apostles to develop new doctrine. And they're going to balk at me saying new doctrine. uh, And they're going to say, no, 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 this is just what we've always believed. But they don't have, they they, they just say, oh, but it's what we've always believed. But you ask them, go back and prove it. Where can you find that belief throughout church history? And they're just going to say, no, we are the ones who interpret tradition as well, right? We, uh, we, can, we selectively choose which, uh, which church fathers we're going to say were authoritative and which ones weren't. And they're even going to say which parts of their writings. So they're going to pick and choose which ones, which, which ones are uh, authoritative and which ones aren't. So they choose the traditions that are good. So, and of course, they choose the ones that empower themselves and say, oh, well, this church father said that uh, uh, the church has all authority. So, of course, they're the ones who uh, are authoritative. But this guy over here, he didn't like the church, uh, the church in Rome, uh, taking on this extra power and throwing its weight around in the world. And so, therefore, he's not authoritative. So, there again putting themselves above tradition because they're selecting which traditions are valid and which ones aren't. Any questions about that? We're going to read a few more quotes from church councils. Uh, And church councils, by the way, are considered infallible doctrine. They are not, like they cannot make an error when they come out with these councils and produce these uh, creedal statements. So, remember how when we read the Nicene Creed a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses? So, Catholics regard that creed as being on the exact same level of authority as the Bible. In terms, yeah, so in terms of authority. We don't believe that. Okay? At least, we don't teach that from this church. We fully acknowledge that the Nicene Creed is entirely accurate. Okay, that's why we can all sit up here and stand as a class and say it affirmatively, okay, because it is accurate. Uh, but it's only accurate because it gets its information from the Bible. Okay, so it's subservient to the Bible. So if they had gotten together as a church in, at, in Nicaea in 325 and taught that God is three persons, and then that was what they're going to they're believe for the next several hundred years, uh, or centuries, going into modern day, it would be wrong, regardless of whether it was came out from a church council or not. So it's because it 
has to agree with what the Bible says. And this may sound like a distinction without a difference, but it really is a major difference. Okay? So to say, as Catholics do, that councils are infallible, uh, infallible teachings equal to the Bible gives the church authority over the Bible. Okay? So if you don't see the logic in this, think about it this way. Let's just say I'm the owner of a company and I want to hire some people. And I have two resumes in front of me. I can choose to hire neither of them. I could hire both of them. Or I could even hire both of them and put one above the other. Right, this one's going to be the manager over that one, or this one's going to be the manager over that, over that employee. That's the, the owner is the Catholic Church, in their view. And then these treatal statements in the Bible and tradition are the employees that they're hiring. So they're the ones with the authority. So it's really only a one-legged stool, not three-legged as they claim. Uh, so it's, it's, like, it's a circular argument. So you, if you ask, ask them, like, where do you get your authority? They're going to say the Bible. Well, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And they say, well, we're the only ones with the authority to interpret the Bible, so we say that it teaches that. So then you say, okay, well, like it's, you're just going in a circle, saying the Bible teaches it, but we're the only ones who can say what the Bible says. Right? So it just keeps going around and around. Uh, they do the same thing with tradition. So... Where do you get your authority from? Well, church tradition. That's what the, the early church fathers said. Well, these church fathers over here said that you don't have this authority. And they say, well, those ones aren't authoritative because we say that they're not authoritative. So it just goes around and around again. Um, said that. So the Council of Trent is considered to be infallible teaching. So what does it say about their own authority? Uh, so here's a long quote. Furthermore, to check unbridled spirits, it decrees that no one relying on his own judgment shall in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, distorting the Holy Scriptures in accordance with his own conceptions, presume to interpret them contrary to the sense which Holy Mother Church, to whom it belongs to judge of the true sense and interpretation, has held and holds or even contrary to the unanimous teaching of the fathers, even though such interpretations should never at any time be published. Those who act contrary to this shall be made known by the ordinaries and punished in accordance with the penalties prescribed by the law. Uh, by the way, this, this teaching was particularly hard to come up with because like, just Catholic theology is so dense, and then like one sentence will have like, five or six addendums into it or uh, little modifiers all the way down. And then before you finally get to the predicate and you forget what the start of the sentence was, and then they'll also include frequently uh, untranslated words from Latin. Uh, and then they have words like the magisterium or the uh, uh, treasury of merit, things like that that just get thrown in, that each of them has a whole dense theology built in behind it. So it's really hard to go through and read this. It's very confusing. Uh, it's tough. So, but basically what that means, what that I just read, that anybody who has an interpretation of Scripture that is different from what the Catholic Church says needs to be punished. That was the Council of Trent, and they pursued that policy, that policy ruthlessly going forward. Right? They burned people who believed this alive at the stake. And they did that for quite a long time. In fact, they fought whole wars against countries that went against uh, the Catholic Church in this regard, if they became evangelical countries. Uh, the church decides what the Bible means, and you're not allowed to disagree with them. That's just what it says. So, Vatican II, which is the most recent church council, says the same thing about the authority of the church. Uh, it says this, but the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is, excuse me, is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, te teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief is divinely revealed. 
So basically they're saying again, according to their official doctrine, uh, whatever we're doing here regularly at this church service is wrong. So we have Pastor Joel or Matt or Richard get up and they teach from the Bible every week to the Catholics, official Catholic doctrine, that is foolishness and it is sin. And it's something that you should actually be punished for doing. You're not allowed to have your own interpretation. And I didn't cover it in the last one, but the last quote, it says it's not even something that you could be published, uh, which they're trying to say that you are not even allowed to have your own opinion privately about the, inter about the interpretation of Scripture. Okay? You need to be in total agreement, even in your own personal opinion, with the Catholic Church. And one of the ironic things about this, too, is that officially the Catholic Church has only interpreted like five or six Bible verses ever in the entire history of the church. They've only released statements officially interpreting those. That's it. Uh, they did it most recently in Vatican I, where Matthew, uh, Matthew 16 and John 21, which we're going to talk about at the end of the class, uh, about Peter being the Pope, right? So, of course, they need to do that to emphasize their own authority again. Uh, that's it. And now they're going to they'll push back on that and say, well, we teach the Trinity, and that's and that comes from the Bible, so therefore we are interpreting the Bible for people. Like we've done more, like our, all our theology is interpreting the Bible, but they don't offer any biblical evidence or support in their statements at all. In fact, when I, so I was a theology major in my undergrad at St. John's. So it's a Catholic university. Uh, so I spent my entire degree program just studying their theology and reading it. How many times... Do you think that we opened the Bible and read in class as a basis for theology? Right? Remember, it's a theology program. I was there for multiple years studying this. Zero. Never had us open the Bible. It was all reading what this theologian said, what this theologian said, and what this theologian said, and what this pope said, etc. Studying the church councils, that was it. They, they don't really have a regard for the Bible. Like, they say they do, but it's, it's, just, rhetoric. it's just rhetorical, right? It's, it's, they really only believe in their own authority when it really comes down to when the rubber meets the road. <clears throat> uh, and don't get thrown off with the phrase, not above the word of God, from that quote that I just read. Uh, it's just a semantic word game that Catholics are notorious for. They're saying they're not above the word of God, but only equal to it. But remember, they're saying they're the only ones who can interpret it. So they are above it. And one of the ironies, so in that quote as well, they're saying they're the only ones who can give you clear teaching. But if you pulled, like clear teaching, but if you pulled Catholics almost anywhere in the world and said, what does the Catholic Church teach? You're going to get a wide variety of answers, and almost all of them are going to be wrong because they really don't know, because the Catholic Church does a pretty bad job of getting their doctrine out to the, to the lay people. Right? They feed it very heavily to the priests and the bishops, etc. But and keep in mind, right? They, they taught all of their doctrine and all their services were in Latin, right? going all the way up to 1965, hundreds of years past when anybody spoke Latin at all. So let me just ask this question real quick. How many of these beliefs are really different than what the Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons claim right? when it comes to their authority claims? It's not that much different. They're the only ones who can interpret it. It's an unassailable interpretation in their minds. So ultimately, it's really not that big of a difference. Uh, it's really just it's, it's a naked authority grab. So, uh, and by the way, Jesus didn't do this himself. He didn't just say... I just have the authority because I have it. Okay? So he said, look at the testimony of the scriptures leading up to me, who I am. So he's pointing back and saying, there's a source outside of myself that he appealed to. Uh, for example, in Mark, we have a story of where they put the paralytic through the roof, and Jesus responded, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees got upset. Hey, you don't have the authority to forgive sins. And so he said, well, fine. I'm going to prove to you that I do. And he said, Take uh, a pick up your mat, mat and walk. Sorry, so that you will know that I have the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to prove it to you. 
by using a miracle, a source outside of himself. Uh, and even in John, the Pharisees uh, got angry at him too. They said, you're just testifying, testifying about yourself. He said, I, I don't testify about myself. The Father testifies about me. John the Baptist testified about me. Uh, he's always appealing to people outside of himself. The Catholic Church doesn't do that. Uh, so what are some scriptures that they do use? Uh, if you press them hard enough, they will give you a few. Uh, they'll go to John or to for, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for, rebru- for, sorry, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But then they end the verse there, and they say, uh, there you have it, scripture is helpful, but it's not sufficient. It's good for these things, but it doesn't say that it's good enough, right, that, that, that it's good for everything. Uh, but if you just read the rest of the verse, right, or go into 17, the rest of the sentence, it says, uh, that the man of God may be complete. Right? Equipped for every good work. So it's, it's clearly a statement saying that Scripture is sufficient for doctrine, uh, for teaching, training in righteousness, etc. That's all you need, is the Bible. Uh, the effect of the Word of God is a mature Christian who is fully equipped for any good work that God would have him do. Very clearly a claim for the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, another one they quote from John 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So according to them, John is saying the Bible uh, is the complete rule of uh, is not the complete rule of faith because everything that Jesus did is not recorded in Scripture. Therefore, we need the Catholic Church to fill in the gaps for us. Okay, but if you just read that, you're not going to immediately think. Oh man, I, there are things that Jesus said and did that I don't know about, so I need the Catholic Church to tell me what, what the rest of it was. Okay? Uh, it's just, it doesn't follow from one to the other. What this verse really means uh, is, this, is that we don't really need every single thing that Jesus said and did. We have everything that we do need. So John gave us what we needed, and that's it. It's, it's sufficient, in other words, right? Scripture is sufficient. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by a spoken word or by our letter. So we're going to say, ha-ha, it says that you need, uh, I lost my verse, you need to hold to the traditions that you were taught. We believe in sacred tradition, and you Protestants don't. So you need to get in line and start believing what the Pope says. Uh, so they're just pra- Catholics are practicing eisegesis on this. So they're reading meaning into the text that just is not there. The word tradition does not have anything to do with Catholic theology and all that stuff that's just lumped in on top of that pillar. Uh, it's uh, he's tell- Paul is telling them to hold the things that he specifically had already taught them. Notice that he's possessive over uh, over uh, the words word and letter. So it's. Uh, over our spoken word and our letters, so it's the things that he had sent out. So it's limited to that. Um, He's saying, don't abandon the things that I taught you, Paul speaking. Latter things, uh, such as the bodily assumption of Mary, the sinlessness of Mary, indulgences, purgatory, they were not in mind when Paul wrote this down. He was actually warning against adding such things to their beliefs. He's saying, don't go beyond what I taught you because I wrote it down for you, and I told you what it was. Right? We have it written down in the New Testament, in the words. He's saying, don't go beyond it. Hold to these traditions. So it means the exact opposite of what they think it means. Uh, once again, uh, I didn't put the Bible verse here. Uh, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's Jude uh, 3, verse 3. So it's saying that the, uh, the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, so they want to say that, that they're the ones who received that faith. right? They're the ones who received the faith that was delivered to them, and they're the ones who dispensed it out to all of us. Uh, but notice the past tense, delivered. We, all of us, are commanded to contend for the faith which was given to us in the New Testament. We have the the writings of the apostles. It's the New Testament. 
Okay? That's what he's saying. I've delivered to you the faith. I've delivered to you what we taught right here in the New Testament. And we are not to go beyond it or add anything or develop new theology for it. So it's once for all, done. It's once. So don't expect anything after the writings of the apostles. Okay? Hold to the things that they taught and that are recorded here. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that they receive some knowledge from the apostles that they get to send out to us. Uh, Matthew 23, the first part of this verse that they want to go to as well to claim authority is, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. So the Catholic argument here is that there was no seat of Moses prescribed in the Old Testament law. Okay? This was a tradition that was developed over time, and then Jesus affirmed it. Right? Because they sit on the seat of Moses, therefore do what they say. Uh, this is, yeah, Matthew 23. So in the same way that the Pharisees did this, now they're sitting in the chair of Peter. That's what they're going to say. So they sat in the seat of Moses, Jesus affirmed it, we're sitting in the seat of, seat of Peter, baby. You know, it's our stuff. It's our authority. Uh, but if you keep reading the rest of the paragraph, it, it's not a verse that you want to quote for authority. Uh, so this is that verse again with more context. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Uh, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by, other, by others. But you are not to be called rabbi or teacher, for you only have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And they call their priest father, and I think this verse absolutely applies to that. This is the exact context that Jesus is referring to. People in church authority, you don't call them father. They do, they do it. Uh, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles, humbles himself will be exalted. So that's Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Jesus is not validating their authority the authority of the Pharisees in this verse. Okay? He's referencing the reality that these, these are the people who are responsible for teaching the law of Moses. They are the teachers of Israel. He says that in another, another verse in the, in the Gospels. Uh, so follow the law of Moses, of course, because uh, this is before his death, but don't follow the traditions that they added to it. He even outlines a whole bunch of things that they do that you're not supposed to do. Don't call yourself teacher, don't call yourself father, etc. And then he even follows this up afterwards with eight woes. The rest of the whole chapter going into 24 is woe to the Pharisees because they added this tradition to the scripture uh, and you're going to hell for it. Like he's really brutal on them for the rest of that verse. So the whole thing is Jesus condemning them for being responsible for teaching the law, and failing to do it because they added man-made traditions onto it. Well, the Catholic Church is saying, oh, we have the seed of Peter, and we have the authority to add tradition onto it then. So it, it's devastating when you really understand that verse to their, to their claims. So if there it really is a parallel between the Pharisees and the Catholic in this verse, as they want to claim, the, the, the parallel is this, woe to you, Catholic Church. Woe to you, Pope Francis. So, again, another personal testimony. So, as I mentioned before, I was a theology major uh, for St. John's. Oh, I already actually said that. But how many times did I have to read the Bible? Zero. Uh, and then this is one last major argument that they make for authority, is they say that they're the ones who gave us the Bible in the first place. That's the claim that they make, is that we're the ones who said that these books are the ones that belong in the Bible. We're the ones who said that these books are Scripture, and these other books are not. The Gospel of Matthew is Scripture because we said it was Scripture. And the book of 1 Peter is Scripture because we said it was Scripture. 
but that's just not the reality of how things work. Okay? The, the, the books that are in our New Testament are not there and not considered scripture because some people uh, in church authority back in the earliest centuries said that they were scripture. They are scripture because they were written by God. They were the ones that were inspired by God, breathed out by him. And recognizing that something is true and recognizing that it's the word of God and that it's scripture is not the same as declaring it and creating it to be scripture. It's a big difference there. So they don't, they don't get to make that claim. And by the way, there was no Catholic church at this time either. You don't really have a Roman Catholic church as we know it today until the 5th or 6th century. There's no pope until Gregory the Great uh, in 590 or something like that. He's, the really, he's really the first pope, the one who took that title on and started you know, throwing his weight around for authority in the church. Uh, but that's, that's a long history that uh, we don't have time to go into. So let's take a moment to examine the authority of the Bible over the church and not the church over the Bible. So let's go to Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul said right here in, in his letter to the Galatians, uh, I want you to use the letters right, that he wrote, so the New Testament, to compare everything you hear from anybody else to see if it's true or not. So he's setting up scripture to be the standard, not his successor as an apostle. So he's saying, even if I come back at a later date with a different gospel from the one that I give to you, I'm giving to you now, and the one that I have been giving to you, don't listen to it because you're to compare it to this. He's not saying that he has the authority to develop church doctrine because he doesn't have that authority. So the, anything that contradicts the New Testament scripture, doctrinally, is to be rejected. It's, it is the writing that has the authority, not the messenger. Paul said that right there, Galatians 1, uh, 8 through 9. Uh, and should we not do this to the Catholic Church? When the Pope shows up and or your local Catholic priest and saying that he has the authority and the gospel is that you need to earn grace through good works, uh, you absolutely should compare it to Galatians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2. Um, so Catholics, as I was starting to get into, claim that they go all the way back to the apostles. So we're just going to wrap this up here. This is the end. They claim they go all the way back and that Peter was the very first pope who ruled from Rome with authority from Jesus as the vicar of Christ. So vicar is just anybody who acts in the place of another person of authority. Uh, it's just a Latin word. So the guy who came after Peter as the bishop of Rome would be Peter's successor and take on all the authority that Peter had and so on and so on and so on all the way up to Pope Francis to this day. Uh, they, they, if you go to their, the Vatican website, they have what supposedly is a succession of popes all the way back to Peter. All they did was just, once you get to before Gregory, is, oh, this guy was a bishop of Rome. He must have been the pope. Even though... None of them would have thought that they were a pope. They would, they would be surprised to learn, hey, I have authority over all these guys? Like, that's great. Uh, but they don't. They, they would have been surprised to hear. Um, they claim the church has always believed this. It's in uh, the, the Vatican I, which took place in the 1870s. Uh, it says this. Oh, I didn't put the quote in. So basically, it says very clearly in there that Pope is the Peter, or Peter is the Pope, according to Matthew 16 and John 21, where these are two of the five or six verses that they've ever officially translated or interpreted, uh, and that the church has always believed that Peter was the Pope. And that in Matthew 16, that's the one where uh, Jesus says, Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock I build my church. We're going to read it here in a second. That was Peter, or that was Jesus declaring that Peter was the Pope. That he immediately at that moment became the Pope, and that the church has always believed it. 
Uh, again, we, we don't have time to go through it. But the verse is Matthew 16, 13 through 19, if you want to read it on your own. It's the one where Peter said, or Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter confesses you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So is authority in question here? Absolutely, I think so. Right? That's in the context. But is that person giving authority Peter? I don't think so. The rock is the confession of Peter, not Peter himself. Okay? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So note that he says, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. He does not say, you are Peter on you, I will build my church. It's on this rock. Uh, and in the Greek, there's two different words. So you are Peter, Petros, which is a small rock like this. And on this rock, Petra, which is like a ledge or like a found, something you could build something on, like a foundational stone. I will build my church. So it's, it's two different words. So it's, it's, he's, it's, not, it's not an equivalence there. That doesn't, that doesn't come, th- come through in the English. So. so Jesus is said many times to be the foundation stone of the church. So Acts chapter 4, verse 11, that's the one where he's, they're quoting Psalm, where he's the stone that the builds are rejected. 1 Corinthians 3, 11, no other foundation other than Christ can be laid. There are examples of that. Jesus is the only one who's ever said to be the foundation and the rock of the church, not Peter, anywhere else. It's very consistently Jesus. So Peter can't be that person. Nowhere else is it saying that uh, Peter is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 is an example where it says that Christ is the head of the church, not Peter. Uh, So the church, uh, the Catholic church said that that the church has always believed this. So is this true? Uh, there was actually a French Roman Catholic who decided to go back and survey the early church fathers to see what they had to say about this verse from Matthew 16. Uh, and they found out that 17 of them said that this rock did refer to Peter. But all 17 of them, uh, none of them at all, said that Peter was the Pope and the head of the church at that point in time. So you have zero references to the Pope, only 17 that say rock. 16 said that the rock was Christ. Eight said that the rock was all of the apostles. And 44 said that the rock was the confession of Peter. So the overwhelming majority, which is 80% of the church fathers uh, from the second century, first and second centuries, uh, disagree with Rome's view on Peter or on Matthew 16. 80% of them. And, And all of them disagree with their position that Peter was the Pope. There's no reference to this at all for centuries. So they, they have what they say is an infallible statement about history, about the church always believing this, that is provably, verifiably wrong. And let's just think about this a little more. As you continue reading in Matthew and on through the other Gospels and through the book of Acts, do we see any evidence that the other apostles regarded Peter as being the greatest among them? Uh, no, we don't. So remember, right after this scene, so remember, the Pope is wrong. He's, he, he's infallible on matters of faith. But, and they say that Peter, at this exact moment, became the Pope. Therefore, he has all the authority and uh, the abilities that go along with it, like such as in, incapable of being wrong right, on matters of faith. Uh, he, he immediately flubs up right, and says, Jesus, you, know, you don't need to die. And he gets called Satan by Jesus, like immediately afterwards. Okay, so he obviously made a pretty big boo-boo on faith right afterwards, like literally immediately afterwards in the context. Okay? Now, later on, so Matthew chapter 18, so two chapters later, we have Jesus again giving authority of binding and loosing, because that's part of the Matthew 16, I'll give you authority to bind and loose, and whatever you, whatever you bind and that will be loose, etc. He does the exact same thing to all the apostles as two chapters later. So he's giving, he's giving that authority to forgive sins to all the church. He's passing it along to all of us. It's not just Peter who has this. Uh, Luke 22, this is at the end of the Gospel of Luke. On the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified, well after Peter was supposedly made the Pope in front of all the disciples, uh, the disciples were bickering about who's the greatest. This is also, they bickered about this at the Last Supper again, or immediately before this. So they're constantly fighting about who was the greatest. Well, 
you think that would be a settled question if Peter was the Pope. Hey, Peter, you're the vicar of, of my, you're my vicar on earth. You're the greatest one. You're the one who can never be wrong. I feel like that would settle it, right? But they didn't feel like it was settled. They were still arguing, saying, no, 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 like, Philip, like, I'm Philip, I'm the greatest, right? Uh, so it just doesn't jive with it all. In Acts chapter 15, we have a council that where there's a crisis in the church about uh, Gentiles being brought in and what to do about circumcision, etc. cetera. Uh, and Peter is present at this council, but he's not even the one leading it. James is leading it. It didn't play, take place in Rome. It took place in Jerusalem. So it's... And then actually, that's the last time you hear about Peter in the entire book of Acts. That's his last thing is, like he has one thing to say, he, that he submits his opinion to somebody else who's the leader of the church, not him, and then he's gone. And the rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul. So, that's it. So, there's a few more things, but I'm already well past time, so. Do you guys have any questions at all before we wrap up? I mean, I know we covered a lot of ground, and there's even a lot more to dig into there. Sorry we didn't have slides. No questions? We're good? All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. So God, we thank you uh, that we do have your gospel and that your gospel is preached here. And we just pray that that gospel would penetrate into the Catholics that we know in our lives, our friends and our family members and those that we meet on the street that we work with. Help us to uh, remove that false authority the church has claimed, uh, that the Catholic Church has claimed, and, and open our, uh, the eyes of our, uh, our Catholic friends so that they be, can become our brothers and sisters and that they will not be disappointed on the day of judgment thinking that they're Christians when they are not. So uh, we thank you for your gospel again, and I pray that it would abound evermore in our lives. In Jesus' name. All right, thanks for coming, guys.